So this morning, our second look at Genesis chapter 12. Last week, primarily observation. This morning, primarily application. Genesis means origin or beginning. And up until chapter 12, we've read about the, the beginning of the world, the human race. We've read about the beginning of a new world following the flood through Noah and his family. And now we start reading in Genesis 12 of the beginning uh, of a chosen family, of a chosen nation by Abram. God, we see in the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, God singled out Abram to be the object of his favor, to be the object of his affection, to be the object of his plan. God singled out childless, old, landless, pagan Abram, not a likely candidate. God singled him out to be the object of of his favor, of his affection, and of his plan. And then God, having set uh, Abram aside and choosing him, we read God told Abram what to do. And then God told Abram what God was going to do. This is how a relationship with God works. God tells you what to do. This is, this is what is unappealing to us as sinful human beings. It's what keeps many people from turning to God, from believing in God. Well, if I believe in God, then, of course, He's God, and I'm going to have to do what He tells me to do, which is reasonable. And so we resist that. We don't want to do what God says. We don't want someone to have complete governing over our lives. But this is how it works in a relationship with God. So God chooses Abram, loves him, sets his affection on him, and tells him tells him what to do. Tells him to get up and move. Move away from uh, all earthly human securities. To leave all of that and go to a place where, where he doesn't even... Abram doesn't even, you know, God just says, I will show it to you. He doesn't give him, you know, GPS coordinates. He doesn't give him any kind of a map. He just says, go and I'll lead you and we'll, we'll get there. And then God tells Abram what, what God's going to do, right? Seven promises God makes. I will, I will, I will. I will show you a land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who dishonors you. I will give your offspring this land. God says he will do all these things and tells Abram so. Get up and go. And Abram did as he was told. Now this is the great thing about Abram. This is the great thing about Abram. This is why Abram is someone whose example we should follow. Real simple. He heard God's word. He believed God's word. He obeyed God's word. This is what is great about Abram in chapter 12. It's what will be great about Abram as we as we read on. Uh, He heard God's word. He believed what he heard from God. And then he organized his life accordingly. He lived according to the truth that God revealed to him. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews highlights. When the author of Hebrews, 
who I think is Paul, so I might sometimes say Paul said. But in Hebrews 11.8, he looks back at Abram and explains his greatness. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That should make some of you nervous. Some of you are, are, are nervous like that. You know what it's like to not know where you're going. You don't like surprises. The author wants you to understand. Abram did not know how this was going to go. He did not know the specifics. He did not know the details. And yet he clearly heard God's word. He believed God's word. And he, he lived accordingly. He obeyed him. He was faithful. Which is why Romans chapter 4, verse 16 calls Abram our father of faith. All those who are faithful after Abram, they can call Abram their dad, their spiritual father. Because we have a faith as Christians that was like his. Faith is what we're talking about today. And, and we're going to spend some significant time here just understanding faith for some reasons that might be obvious. You may have heard, and if you have, you've heard correctly, that people are saved by faith. Or we are justified by faith. In the 16th century, that was the battle cry of the Reformation. Justification by faith alone. So how is one saved? How does one become a Christian? How does one become reconciled to God? Well, the Bible clearly, clearly teaches that what is required of you and what is required of me is faith. That is what is required. Now, we have lots of other substitutes for that. Lots of other things. Christian equals not faith, but many other things. But when we're evaluating whether or not we're actually Christians, this is what we're going after. Are we men and women of faith? Because again, we're justified by faith. We're not justified by saying the sinner's prayer. But some people live their whole life and they keep checking the Christian box because they said the sinner's prayer. We're not saved because we go forward at an altar call. We're not saved because we were by our baptism. We're, we're not saved by going to church. We're not saved by saying and declaring openly, I am a Christian. We're not saved by memorizing Bible verses. Now, many of these are good things, but we just need to be real clear that we're not saved by any of that. We are saved by faith. So it's really important, right? It's really important that we understand what faith is. I mean, that's the crux. If, if faith is what I need to do in order to be justified by God, then I, I sure want to know exactly what faith is. That's doubly important if we live in a culture that typically misunderstands faith. And I think we do. I think we do. Every church has faithful and faithless. People of faith, people who are not of faith. 
Every church has people who believe that they are faithful, but who actually are not faithful. And much of the reason for that is a misunderstanding of what faith actually is. So three questions. Three questions, and I hope to address the faithful and the faithless. I hope this will be helpful for those of you who do have faith in Christ, and I hope it will be helpful for those of you who do not have faith in Christ. The first question will be, what is faith? What is faith? And I'm going to warn you, I don't have a neat and tidy definition. If you're like me, you love neat and tidy and clear definitions. And the text that we're looking at today, I'm having a hard time seeing it as lending itself to a neat and tidy definition. But we can look at some characteristics of saving faith. So we're going to try to do that. Answer the question, what is faith? Second question will be, where does faith come from? Where does faith come from? And that's going to be especially for those of you who are faithful. Understanding where does faith come from? And then the the third will be, now what? Now what? That's great. That's just great. This is what faith is. This is where faith comes from. And we're going to have to answer that third question. Because as you will see, there may be some frustration after the answers to those first two. So hang on. We'll get to number three, the, the what, what do I do? And I think that's going to be super practical. So let me pray and we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the word that you have given us. God, we know that it is a light to our dark path. We know that it is sweet like a honeycomb. We know that it is like a, a sword that is able to cut through all of our uh, pretentiousness or hypocrisy. Um, God, we know that Your Word is from You and it, it gets delivered to our minds and our hearts by the Holy Spirit and that He delivers it with a powerful blow to our soul. So God, we come expecting that You will rattle our hearts with Your truth. God, I pray that people would make their calling and election sure, that they would examine themselves to see whether or not they are in the faith. And I pray that these words from Your Word would be helpful to that end. We pray this in the great, the perfect, the name above all names, the name of Your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Question number one. What is faith. Let me read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 11. We see a great example of faith in Genesis chapter 12 and following. But as is often the case, there is a lot of narrative text in your Old Testament, a lot of descriptive text in your Old Testament, and then much more prescriptive text in your New Testament. So often what you do is you read what's taking place in the Old Testament and then you you can lay the New Testament over and and be able to interpret and understand what was taking place. So Hebrews 11 is very helpful to lay over Genesis 12 and following because he's going to commentate on the life of Abram and help us to understand why. 
Why is Abram doing the things that he's doing? Why did he just get up and, and leave this land of Ur and, and head for Canaan? Uh, why is, is he setting up altars everywhere? He's, you know, why is he living like this? And we get, we get an understanding of the why from Hebrews chapter 11. And it helps us to answer this question. What is this faith that I must have? So let me read the three verses and then we'll take it a, a chunk at a time. Three verses, by the way, that I think are not simple verses. So if you read these and um, your, your, your mind struggles, I think that's okay. We're, we're praying that God's going to help us here. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now, faith is... That's a great beginning because of our question. We want to know what faith is. This looks like a good place to go. Faith is. I'm excited. I want to hear what he says. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, the first thing that strikes me is that that faith clearly is a rational thing. And I bring that up because often faith is described as just. I think I've described it this way before. Faith is just this blind, irrational crazy thing that that you need to do to become a Christian. Right? We use terms like uh, blind faith. Um, you need to just take the plunge or, or give it a try. These are even the words that we use to try to call people to put their faith in, in God. And often the, the image that's presented is you're leaping into the unknown, right? You're stepping into the darkness. Well, the Bible describes it in the complete opposite as you're stepping into the light. You're stepping into light. And it doesn't seem to, in these verses, the first thing I notice is it doesn't seem to be uh, irrational. It doesn't seem to be unreasonable. It doesn't seem to be illogical. I mean, there are words like substance and evidence that are used here to describe faith. Some of you remember, I was taught by faith through this object lesson. And I was asked to stand on a structure that was about five or six feet off the ground. Okay, and there were to be a bunch of people who were lined up on the ground below me and they had their arms like this, right? You ever done this? They had their arms like this and then I was to face the other way, close my eyes, and I was supposed to just fall back and that was supposed to teach me about faith. Because you're, you're tr- the idea is, okay, you're taking the plunge, you're, you, it's blind, you're stepping into darkness, but just do it, just do it, just do it. And, and why? Because these people are going to, to catch you. Okay? They, will, they will be there for you. And that was supposed to be faith. And so it, it comes with these ideas. Just so there's this blind, uh, what, gee, I hope, I hope they catch me. That's going to hurt. 
I hope this works out. And, and if you did it like I did it, and it's a bunch of your friends that have their arms out, they're very questionable. You're not, you're not confident at all that they're not going to just mess with you and, and drop you right on, on the ground. That, is, that does not seem to be really what is talked about here in regards to faith. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, let's talk about hope quickly. Faith and hope go together. Faith and hope are linked in your Bible. You, 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. Right there they are separate. And here they are again. They're brought together in verse 1. Faith and hope. They're inextricably linked. Now, the word hope has lots of different meanings. And I think it has, for most of you, I suspect that when you hear the word hope and think of the word hope, it is not biblical hope. In other words, if if you take your definition of hope and you think that when you read about hope in the Bible, you're going to not understand what the Bible is actually talking about. In the West, hope refers... See if you agree or disagree. This would be my understanding just commonly of hope. Hope refers to a desire in our hearts regarding what we would like to happen in the future but are not sure will come to pass. Okay, so it's a desire in our heart of the way we would like things to turn out in the future, but we're not sure that they're going to turn out that way. And so we say, I hope this goes this way. I, I hope that things turn out the, 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 way they, the way that I want them to. Some of you are into sports and you have favorite sports teams. And so if you're like me, I, I, re- I regularly hope the, the, the Lakers, the Yankees, the Patriots, the, the Giants, the 49ers, you know, teams that I like, I regularly hope that they will win their games. But I have no control over whether or not they will win their games. But it's a desire of my heart that, that, that has as the backdrop of a very uncertain future. And so we say, I hope for this and I hope for that. Now, that is not biblical hope. Your Bible never means that when it uses the word hope. Hope in the Bible refers to a desire in our hearts regarding a certain future. It couldn't be more different. It's not hope as we may think of it. It's not hope. It's not this desire in my heart regarding an uncertain future. Biblical hope is a desire in my heart that is rooted in a certain future. It's why Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 says that hope is the anchor for your soul. It's an anchor. Hope is anchored, it says, in, in the holy of holies, in what Christ did for us. An anchor that, that keeps us from that keeps us certain, that, that, that is locked in, that keeps us from being tossed one way or another or dashed into the rocks or taken by the storm. It is an anchor that holds us, our hope is. So it's not in something uh, uncertain, it isn't something certain. So it's the difference between hoping for something and hoping in something. Biblically speaking, we do not hope for things. We hope in things. And it's a certainty in regards to the future. 
So the very first part of chapter uh, verse one, the first thing that the author says about hope, that Paul says about hope, is that faith, or about faith, faith is the substance of things hoped for. A Christian has things that they hope for. Future events. Uh, A Christian has things that are not seen, but they are hopeful are happening or are, are going to happen or have happened. A Christian has this kind of hope. And the substance of that, the substance of that hope, what grounds that hope, what what makes that hope legitimate, according to this verse, is faith. So our ability to have the kind of hope, this kind of hope, is based on whether or not you have faith in God, whether or not you trust God. This is the, the foundation we're learning here. Faith is the foundation for our hope. My hope is based on something that God told me will happen. So the substance of my hope is my trust and confidence in the one who is making the promise. So hope is, is faith looking forward. Okay, so the point to take here, very clear, is if there is no faith, there is no hope. If there is no faith, there is no hope. Which is why there's much hopelessness in the world today. There's a lot of hopelessness in the world today because there's a lot of faithlessness in the world today. And people don't have hope because they do not know God. However, one of the greatest tricks that Satan is pulling is that, that, that people believe that they are hopeful when they actually are hopeless which is really sad. Because their hope is not in things that are certain. Their hope is not in God. So the way that we are able to have this this unshakable hope. Who doesn't want that? Unshakable hope. I know how the story ends. I know what God is doing. I know what His promises are. I know He will come through. And I can have joy fully because I know I know God. You don't have that. The substance of that hope is faith. No faith, no hope. He goes on and says that as well, faith is the evidence of of things not seen. Okay, the things hoped for. Another way of saying that. The things that we're hoping for. But those are things that are not necessarily seen. But they're things we're hoping for. Uh, that, that Jesus will come back. That's something that we're hoping for. But that's something that is not seen right now. Uh, that, that Jesus is uh, right now as we're struggling with sin. And, and we're believing lies. That, that, that Jesus is next to God the Father advocating for us. That's something we're hopeful about. But it's not something that we see with our own eyes, right? 
that, that, that we're, when we die, that we're going to live eternally, that we're going to be with Jesus forever. That's something we're hoping for. It's something that we, but that we don't see right now, that, that God is working for the good of us. Oftentimes, when we look at our circumstances, it does not look like God is working for our good. Let's be honest. But we have a hope. It's not something that we necessarily see, but we have a hope. He says the substance of that hope is faith. And now he goes as far as it is the evidence, the proof. The proof. Is our faith. These things that we're hoping for. Then now future, these things that we do not see. Our hope is locked in. We're joyful because of it. how how is that possible? What are we what are we banking that on? Is that just a blind just a blind, I, well, I hope it turns out well. What is the proof? Well, Paul says the proof is faith. The proof is faith. We love evidence. Right? We love evidence. Seeing is what? Believing. I'll believe it when I see it. Someone says something, prove it. We love saying things like that. Show me. I lived in Missouri for a year, and it's called the show me state. I guess everyone just wants everything proven to them. Evidence is what we're after. When we talk about putting our hope in God and trusting God, and the question comes, why would I believe that? Show me proof. Hebrews says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. What is evidence? Evidence is something visible, something tangible that points to an invisible truth. And that's what evidence is. So crime investigators come to a crime scene and they they don't know exactly what happened. But what do they gather up? They gather up evidence. They, they find what they can see and what they can look to and they evaluate it. And that hopefully will tell them what is unseen to them, what has what has happened. Well, Paul says that that's what faith is. You have these things that are unseen, these unseen truths that are true. And the evidence of them is faith. So here's how this here's how this works. Here's why faith is the evidence of these things that we hope for. Here's how we know that these things are true by faith. I don't know the future. And you don't know the future. But God knows the future. And by faith, I know God. I know God. Faith is knowing God and believing God. And when you're knowing and believing God, the future is certain because the future is certain to God. You cannot place your faith in anything else or anyone else. We're real quick to do it. I mean, we put our faith in the weatherman that the high tomorrow is going to be 92 and the low is going to be 63. But we're slow to put our faith in the God of the universe. And the meteorologist has our trust. (laughs) Faith is not irrational. Faith is rational. If God is who he says he is. Do you know what, friends, do you know what is irrational? 
to not believe what God says. The most irrational thing that anyone could do is not to believe God. Because he's God. R.C. Sproul says this. So if God promises that tomorrow will bring something, and if I trust God for tomorrow, I have faith in something I have not yet seen. The faith serves as evidence because its object is God. I know Him and He has a track record. He is infallible and never lies. God knows everything and is perfect in whatever He communicates. So if God tells me that something is going to happen tomorrow, I believe it even though I haven't seen it yet. So here we are, Christian, you believe God and someone says, how can you believe the things that you believe? Those are ridiculous things. You cannot prove them. There is no science to back up the future return of Christ. There, there is nothing that you can show me that is... What is your evidence for believing that? And the evidence is faith. The evidence is God said this. Amen. And God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. God is perfect in all his ways. God is totally faithful. God has never said anything untrue. God has never said that something would come to pass, and it did not come to pass. God has a perfect track record. So any other faith or belief or trust in anybody else does not work in evidence in hoping that things will go the way that that person says they will go, except God. When you're talking about God, then faith in God is evidence. It is proof for the things that we're hoping for because it's God. It's God that we're believing. It's God that we're trusting. Therefore, third point is sort of boiling that down. Faith is, as the author of Hebrews makes clear, believing God. Faith is believing God. What has God said? This is what God has said. This is what God has said. And this is what you should believe. Not what someone else tells you God has said. Not what you saw in a dream after eating Mexican food. Not what some crazy lady prophesied over you. God's word. God's word. Do we believe God's word? This is what faith is. The kind of faith that we're justified by. The kind of faith that leads to our salvation and our adoption as sons and daughters. The kind of saving faith. It is simply put, believing God. Right? We read the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. We, we read that God tells Abram to do something. And we learn in Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, that Abram believed God. And that's why he did it. See, we read Genesis 12 and God told him and, and Abram did it. And we're like, man, wow. I wonder if like, I wonder if there's something we don't know here. Did God threaten him? Did, did lightning strike? I mean, what was the deal here? How did God make him really give everything up for him? And then Hebrews 11 tells us what happened by faith. That's what we're after. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So he goes and he leaves everything. And it tells us that he can abandon all that because he is looking forward to another city whose builder and foundation is God. Now, where did he get the idea that there is another city whose builder and foundation is God? And the answer is God told him. And so by faith, by faith, by faith is telling you and me he believed God. You want to know what? The kind of faith that is required for your salvation, it is believing God. Believing God. The kind of belief in God that says, I don't need to read Genesis to Revelation to then determine or evaluate whether or not I'm going to believe it all. Faith in God is, I believe you, God. I am convinced. I am compelled. And I don't even know what, as your pastor, I can say, I don't even know the depths of this book. But I know that whatever this says, I believe it. I believe it. And a faithful life is just learning more and more and more about the God you believe. And whatever he says, it is true. I believe it. I'm like this sometimes when I get a new electronic device. I love gadgets and electronics. And so maybe I get an, an iPhone and I'll, and I'll spend, you know, when I've got some free time, I'll, I'll spend the next few days just kind of looking through it, right, and discovering new features, maybe reading about it online, trying new things. And, and I, didn't, I didn't even know everything that was great about this when I, I knew some things enough to get me to buy it right but i didn't know everything that was great and and, and then you know it's, it's just this unfolding right this imparting of all these wonderful things that are i mean this is electronics i'm talking about god god we'll spend the rest of eternity learning how wonderful god is yeah. and everything is this your disposition toward god that everything that he has to say to me, I will believe it. I will not question. I will believe God no matter what. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, there's an example of this. Because God has made promises and the prophet looks around and others look around and are, are sort of thinking, are you sure, God? Did we misunderstand? It does not look like it's coming together the way you said it was going to come together. And so the Lord answered the prophet and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. When we read the promises of God and then we turn towards our circumstances and it looks like maybe the, we're, we're tempted to believe the promises of God are not true. We're tempted to believe, for example, that He's not actually working for our good. God, You've promised to 
deliver me. You've promised to rescue me. You've, you've promised to save me. And, and really, God, it feels like you, you've promised that, that uh, there will be a bruising, but there will not be a, a breaking. But uh, I'm, I'm going to snap. And uh, I'm at the end of my rope. I don't think I can live anymore. I don't think I can do this for a, another another day. And this is what the, the prophet was 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 saying to God. And, and God's response was, if it seems slow, wait for it. Just wait for it. Have faith. God's promises are true. Though He may tarry, He will deliver. You know, it's a promise. Faith believes God no matter what. Believes God no matter what. This is where we can learn from children. Now, Jesus says, yeah, look, look at kids. Look at kids. They are, they are wonderful examples for us. Not in every way, but in some ways. Now, children are a great example of childlike faith. Right? You've heard this. Now, not a childish faith. God is not saying have a childish faith or an immature faith. It's very different, but a childlike faith. Now, here's how this is demonstrated in kids. Kids believe whatever their parents tell them. Parents, try it. Some parents mess with their kids just to see what can I pull over this kid. I'll start telling them at a very young age that every December, a fat guy in a red suit Right? Flies around in a sleigh with reindeer and drops gifts down our chimney. The child doesn't ask for proof or evidence or are you sure? I mean, they, they saw the carrots with bites out of them and you know, they've seen enough. Kids typically will believe anything, anything their parents tell them. This is an example of childlike faith. Faith is believing God, no matter what God says, God, I am going to believe you. I'm going to hold to whatever you say is true. Uh, Then the author goes on and gives us, we learn more about faith as he gives us some examples of this faith in verse 4 and following. By faith, first Abel, by faith, Abel, offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So you remember this story. Cain and Abel both come to worship God. They both bring a sacrifice to God. God accepts Abel's sacrifice and he rejects Cain's sacrifice. Outwardly, I think things look the same. Some will say, well, Cain brought a lousy sacrifice and it was the, the object of his offering that was wrong. And I don't, that's not what Hebrews 11 is saying. It's talking about the heart of the two men. So both of them worship God. So picture Cain and Abel, right, sitting together in the worship service and they're both singing the songs, they're both listening to the sermon, they're both going through the motions, but one's heart is near God and one is far from Him. And we've learned that the difference of Abel is that he came to God by faith. And God is concerned with the heart. 
And so we learn here that, that, that faith, faith, believing God, that, that faith is what, what either makes our worship glorify God or stink to God. And a lot of worship stinks to God. God doesn't just hear song. God, God doesn't have favorite worship song. Oh, I love that song. And it, it has nothing to do with but who's singing the song. And, and are they faithful? And does their heart belong to God? And if someone who is faithless and heartless is singing a song to God, it is putrid to God. And it, it stinks and it does not please him. You remember he said in Amos 5.21, this was strong language. The people were gathering together and they were worshiping God. And they were going through the motions and they were offering the sacrifices and singing the songs and holding the feast just like God told them to. And then God says this to them. I hate your feasts. I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Why? Because I hear one thing coming from your lips, but your hearts are far from me. It's a bunch of canes gathered together for worship. They're not able. They're not coming by faith. So faith, but believing God is essential if your worship is going to honor and glorify God. That's really good for us to hear. Because we can't think that just going through the motions is going to cut it. We can't think that God is a God who just gives us a task list and do these tasks and you and me are going to be fine and there's no worries or no problems. God is after something far deeper than that. And the intentions of your heart are very important. Is there affection for God in your heart? This should be alarming to some of you. It may be alarming to some of you because you're you're going through the motions and you've always done the right things. And so you've made assumptions about your status before God. But when we start talking about faith as being something that makes your worship acceptable to God or not. It's reason to evaluate our hearts. So this was Abel. We learned that about faith. Uh, Verse five and six, Enoch Remember Enoch, we, we, the narrative in the Old Testament is real quick. He, just, he, he walked with God and then he was not. God just, he, disap- he disappeared. God took him. And by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So it went really well for Enoch. And it went well because he pleased God. And how did he please him? Verse 6, and without faith. It is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So here is a, a more understanding of faith. Okay, Enoch was a faithful man and he pleased God because he was faithful. Now, how is he faithful? Well, two things. He believed that God existed. Number one. He believed that God existed and he believed that God rewards those who seek him. And so he sought after God. He didn't just believe God existed. He sought after God. Well, this is something else that's important for us to understand when we're talking about real saving faith. It is not enough to just believe that God exists. It's not enough. Most people, most people in our country will will say they believe in God. And the question is usually worded, do you believe in God or a power higher than yourself? Which is an unfortunate thing for God to get lumped in with. But most people would answer that question, yes. But that doesn't mean anything. 
like Enoch, who is faithful, he believed that God existed. And it, it, that number gets far smaller when you ask those who say they believe that God exists. If you ask the question, is it your desire to seek after him? Is it your desire to honor him? Is your passionate pursuit in life the pleasure of God? That number gets smaller, doesn't it? Because those who are faithful are a far, far smaller bunch. But this is what we see in the life of Enoch. We learn something about faith. He goes on now in Noah, verse 7. We know this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that that comes by faith. Noah became what 1 Corinthians 4.10 talks about, a fool for Christ. A fool for Christ. He believed God and he believed God to the point that he became a laughingstock. Which may happen for you and I as believers. How can you believe the things that you believe? Well, faith is the evidence of, oh, that's just circular reasoning and that doesn't make any sense. And how silly. Well, we shouldn't be surprised. 1 Corinthians 4.10 says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. We will be seen as fools. Fools for Christ's sake. And then, of course, I won't read him again, but he gets to Abram in verses 8 through 10 and points out that very clearly Abraham was a man of faith and he was a man of faith meaning he believed God. Friends, do you believe God? Not do you know God's Word. Not not do you know the verses. That's so important. So important. It's crucial that you know the verses. But not just do you know the verses. Do you believe God's Word? Does your life demonstrate that? Does it look like you really believe what God says? Or does your life does your life demonstrate that in fact you don't you don't believe God? You call yourself faithful, but when you well when you say it like that, it's not the case. And you don't believe God, and you don't believe his promises, and you don't believe his word, and you don't live accordingly. This is what faith is. Now the second question second two will be more brief. The second question, and then the third question will be what what now? But number two, where does this faith come from? And I want to say this especially to those of you who are faithful. This may cause some frustration and confusion to those of you who might be here and are not faithful. And, and some Christians don't want you to know this before you're faithful. I'll explain what I mean. But it is, it is, it is an important truth for your joy, Christians, to know where this faith that you have, if you have this faith, that you know where it came from. Because the answer is not from yourself. The answer is not from yourself. And if you believe that, 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 will, that will get rid of a lot of problems, but it will 
completely rob you of joy and God of glory. So second question, where does faith come from? We need to, we need to say a bit more here. And there are different ways for me to say this, but I want to uh, let me say it as a, as offensively as I possibly can. And that's our pattern. And the reason I do that is because if your guard's going to go up, I'd rather have it go up here while we're discussing these things and reading God's word together than for me to dumb it down. And then later you feel the offense and you, you start reeling. So it's good to say things that are true in love, followed with more truth offensively, because oftentimes truth is is offensive. So hopefully my attitude will not be offensive in this. But the truth, I think the truth often, often is. This faith that we just talked about and defined, this faith that that you and I must have, this this faith that is the only way to to please God. Okay, you cannot do it. It is impossible for you to have this kind of faith. Totally beyond your reach. On one hand, Scripture clearly teaches that faith is something God requires. True. Right? We've got that. This faith is required of you. This faith is required of me. There's no way around it. And on the other hand, Scripture also teaches that no one can exercise saving faith unless God does something supernaturally to empower and enable you to do so. This is the the rest of the story. This is the rest of the truth that is crucial for God's glory and for your good. So faith, what we're looking at, is not something that you and I have the ability to conjure up on our own strength. And it's good for you to know that so you don't go out and just try to do that because you'll get very frustrated. This is not something that you and I can just check off of of our list. It is impossible for us to believe God like this. The reason that that is impossible in and of ourselves is simply put because we are sinners. But we've got to really understand what that means. When we say we're sinners, when the Bible says we're sinners, it doesn't just mean uh, that we, we, we do things wrong sometimes. That is not what it means to be a sinner. To be a sinner, biblically speaking, means that you and I are totally corrupt. We're totally corrupt. Radically corrupt. It means that there is nothing good in us apart from God. Absolutely nothing. If left to ourselves, if left to our own devices, it goes the way it went before the flood. Every time. It doesn't mean that you don't do good things and it doesn't mean that I don't do good things, but it means that any good in you or any good that comes from you is because of God working in you and through you. Left to ourselves, we are totally 
and radically corrupt. So what that means is that because we are sinners, here is this is what your Bible here is something that sinners will never ever ever do: put their faith in God. The, being a sinner, the way the Bible says you are a sinner, does not leave room for you or I one day to just say, you know what? I'm going to love God now. And I'm going to please Him. And I'm going to serve Him. And I'm going to leave my wicked ways. And I'm going to stop being indifferent to Him. And I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to worship Him. And I'm going to read the Bible. And I'm going to start giving money to the church. And I'm going to start praying to Him. This, a sinner does not do that. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're all going the other way. We are all born in iniquity. We come forth speaking lies. We have hearts of stone, Ezekiel 11 says. Hearts of stone. Genesis 6, 5. Every inclination of our heart is only evil all the time. Faith doesn't come from that. Romans 8, 7 says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It, it does not obey God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. A sinner is incapable of this kind of faith. Romans 3, 10 through 12. There is no one good. There is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks after God. No, not even one. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful beyond all things and beyond cure. Where do we get the idea that that, that person can one day on their own, say, I love you, God, and choose Him and invite Jesus into their heart and accept Him. Friends, that kind of faith that we're talking about is impossible for sinners. Do you know what needs to happen? If something has to happen, God requires us to have this kind of faith. We are not capable of having this kind of faith. Nicodemus came to Jesus late one night so he wouldn't get caught by his friends. And he went and asked Jesus these kinds of questions. And the response of Christ was surprising. Because he told Nicodemus to do something he couldn't do. And Jesus said, A friend, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus logically asked, You know, uh, how am I going to do that? And the answer, of course, is, Well, this has to be a work of God. Regeneration is the doctrinal word. Born again, generated again, must be given new life. John chapter 3, verse 3 and 5. Remember what Jesus said to him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you can't see the kingdom of God, right? Let alone believe in it and put your faith in it. You can't even see the kingdom of God. Sinners are blind to it. Oh, the kingdom of God is real and God loves you. And Jesus came. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't believe any of that. I don't see any of that is total foolishness. Well, right. You cannot even see the kingdom of God unless and until you've been born again. 
He tells Nicodemus. And then he says in verse 5, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, same thing, said in different ways, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you cannot see the kingdom of God. You're oblivious to the truth. And you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot be saved unless you are born again. So in order for this faith to happen, here is in Latin the order salutus, the order of salvation. We know that faith is necessary. It is required of God. But what must precede faith, friends, is regeneration. And those who have been born again, those whom Ezekiel describes as have been, their heart of stone has been taken and they've been given a heart of flesh. That's one way it's described. In Acts chapter 16, Lydia believes the gospel and she believes it, it says, because the Lord opened her heart. Okay, the blind see, the deaf hear. God opens their heart. He gives the heart of flesh. He removes the scales from their eyes. He opens their ears. At one point, we were, Ephesians 2, dead in our sins, and God made us alive, right? God makes us alive. This is all describing regeneration. And regeneration must happen. And when it does happen, you see the kingdom of God and you enter the kingdom of God. But you must be born again first. Then comes faith. Then comes justification. Then comes adoption. This is the order of salvation. Uh, Many of you have been taught something that was in some ways more palatable. It's what I was raised to believe, but it robs God of glory and it robs you of joy. And that was the popular and wrong teaching that if you want to be born again, you must have faith. You've heard that. Faith is first, then regeneration. Choose God, put your faith in God, trust him and you shall be born again. Do this first and then God will respond to what you've done and cause you to be born again. Now, logically, that doesn't even make sense. That the faith comes before the birth, the birth is first. And biblically, it is very clear. In the scripture we've read, and many others, that God must first do a supernatural work in our hearts in order for us to be enabled to place our faith in Him. So the short way of saying that is your faith, Christian, is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. This is why your joy comes up short if you don't know this, because you're not thanking God for enough things. And you're not understanding how how much He has done for you. Yes, He has given you Christ and He has given you the faith to see it and the faith to believe it. It is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 spells it out clearly. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that is, is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works. So that, why is this all important? So that no man may boast. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And everyone says amen to that. Amen. We are saved by faith. Where did the faith come from? And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Well, why is that important to know? Friends, if you don't know that, you will boast. 
you will boast. If you think that your faith triggered being born again, and it wasn't born again that came before your faith, you will boast. You'll say, saved by grace, saved by grace, wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesus. But when it boils down to it, the difference between you and this guy who heard the same message is that you pulled the trigger of faith when he did not. And there'll be a little bit that you'll hang on to. And God will not get the glory He deserves. And you will not be as thankful as you need to be. Because the truth is that the only difference, friends, between you and the person that doesn't choose Christ is not to be found in you. The difference is that in God's unexplainable sovereign goodness, for reasons unbeknownst to you and me, He chose to cause you to be born again. Now, you want to love God even more. You keep reading. And you learn in Ephesians 1 and elsewhere that God decided to do that for you before He created the world. He chose us in Him. When? Before the foundations of the world. He set His affection on you. So here's the, you know, the deal. We tend to think that God set His affection on us because we're, you know, good and, you know, funny and cute and valuable and worthwhile. And, but the truth is that God set His affection on you before you were born. Before you were born. And you take the day, if you can remember, when you placed your faith in Christ and you know that before you were even born, God decided that there would be a point in time and that was that point in time when He would cause you to be born again and you would see the kingdom of God and you would enter the kingdom of God. And see, if you know that, if you believe that, that should deepen your affection for Christ. That should deepen your love for God, knowing what He has done for us and in us. R.C. Sproul says, when we think about the riches of divine mercy by which we were redeemed and contemplate that even the faith by which we are saved came not from our own flesh and will, but as a direct result of supernatural intervention in our lives, we ought to be driven to our knees in gratitude and thanksgiving. And then finally, number three, what now? And I want to address this specifically to those of you who are faithless, who have discovered through the sermon or are concerned after the sermon that you may not be faithful. And you may be tempted after point one and two to, to leave here saying, thank you for absolutely nothing, Pastor. You've told me what I need to do. And then you've told me that I need to be born again before I can do that. And I cannot cause myself to be born again. Right? This is what Nicodemus wrestled with. So thank you very much. That's totally frustrating. What am I supposed to do now? And there is something that I can encourage you to do now. Jonathan Edwards thought a lot about this in the 18th century. And he said some very wise words that I'm going to end up closing with. What, what do you do? And it also means how do you interact with those who are, are faithless? It answers that too. And how do you pray for those who are faithless? Yes, we're praying that God would do a work in their heart. And if you want, you can pray that God would do a work in your heart. But if you don't love God, you're probably not going to want to pray that. <laughs> and if you're praying that, you probably have faith in God. It's just a big mess, isn't it? 
So what are you going to do? Well, we understand up until this point what God needs to do in your heart. And we understand what ultimately you're going to have to do, and that is to place your faith in Christ. But there is another piece. And that is you must hear the Word of God. Does God determine the ends? Salvation? Not Yes. God also determines the means. And the means through which everyone that has ever been saved is saved is through the preaching of the Word and the quickening of the Holy Spirit so that they would believe that Word. So you know what you, the faithless one, needs? You know what your faithless friend needs? Well, you know what you're praying for God to do, but you know they need the Word of God. Think of the Holy Spirit as fire and think of God's Word as kindling. Give them something to burn up in a heart. Romans 10.17 Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's not just a magic snap of God's fingers. He brings the Gospel. He brings His Word. He brings His truth and He quickens those to believe. So regardless of how you feel about God, regardless of whether or not you're seeking Him, regardless of... If you hear something today that makes you unsettled in your soul, start reading God's Word. Come back next Sunday. Hear God's Word. Sit under God's Word. Here's how Jonathan Edwards worked it out. And I love this as he talks to the one who's hearing this bad news and wrestling with what to do next. You do not know whether you are elect or not elect. You know that if you don't have faith, you're going to go to hell. You know that it is to your advantage to find out whether you have any capacity for faith. And you know that the ordinary way in which God brings people to saving faith is through the preaching of the gospel. So even if you have no love for God whatsoever and only have your own self-interest at heart here, your enlightened self-interest, the wise thing is to put yourself in the way of grace. That is, place yourself where the means of grace are most commonly concentrated. And that means attending the preaching of the Word of God. It is to your advantage to do this even if you find it boring, odious, and distasteful. Perhaps God, in His mercy, will pierce your heart as you are listening to the Word of God. You may, Christian, be a Christian now who understands this, and you may know others who have gone through this. And there was a time in your life where you kept going back to God's Word and you kept listening to God's Word, and you did not like what you were hearing. And in the end, it was God's means of bringing you to faith. So it would be wise. It would be wise for those of you who are not faithful. It would be wise for you to get as close as you can, as often as you can, to the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are a great Father.
and there is gathered here this morning, you know, a lot of your children, sons and, and daughters whom you have called to yourself. You've saved us. God, deepen our understanding of faith. Deepen our understanding of how it is that, that we please you. God, help us in our unbelief. Make us a people who take you at your word, who believe everything you tell us. And God, for those who, who hear this now and, and just hear foolishness, uh, and think this is silly and are disregarding it. God, we pray that You would quicken their heart. Pray You would cause them now to be born again, that they would see Your kingdom now. That they would place their faith in You and enter Your kingdom now. We love You, God. And we give You all praise, glory, and honor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.